It's Friday, April 15th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, in a more serious take on yesterday's musings, how is the pandemic and modern technology changing how we communicate about and understand time? Plus, speaking of time, why do Passover and Easter sometimes occur so far apart from one another? Let's talk about the messy world of human-constructed calendars and natural cycles. And that startup trying to slingshot satellites into space has officially booked a test launch with NASA. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Well, since yesterday I joked a bit about the words that we use for time and how Wired contributor Paul Ford suggested we might update some units of time to better reflect our strange new world, I thought perhaps today I'd dig in a bit more seriously to that same notion. Sociolinguist Anne Delaney recently expounded on chronemics and how our nonverbal language of time is shifting right now. Chronemics is, quoting Delaney in JSTOR Daily, the study of the relationship between time and communication. Through the lens of chronemics, we can examine why time appears to have a different essence at, well, different times. End quote. Chronemics can refer to verbal and nonverbal communication about time. Verbal communication can include some of the unique grammatical ways that we refer to time in English. Phrases like running out of time and carving time out or putting time in. These are all phrasal verbs that can trip up non-native English speakers. Time can also drag. It can fly. We're very expressive about time. And like humans always have, but as is particularly iterative on the internet, over the last couple of years, we've come up with even more creative ways of expressing our relationship into time. In particular, people have played with how the pandemic has seemed to make time pass in very strange ways. Delaney gives examples of how we kept referring to dates as March 42nd when we were well into April, or the classic Blur's Day. But the way we perceive time goes beyond words. Quoting Delaney, As we understand and measure time in limitless ways, we use it to communicate in as many frames and contexts. Commuting, school drop-offs, train schedules, pregnancy months, New Year's Eve countdown seconds, the moments among weapons firing in a war, the spaces between notes of a song and movements in a symphony. So little and so much can happen in 10 seconds. Some years seem like a blink and others seem to move like mercury. Whose grandmother did not say, time goes much faster when you're old, and whose child does not ask, are we there yet? We may drum our fingers on the table or wiggle our feet, signaling impatience at the passage of time or awaiting someone's arrival. In a line or a queue, and depending on the country, we might look around to make sure we're in the fastest line, or that no one has cut in front of us. Pointing at our watchless wrists with questioning eyebrows and shoulders, we can, even silently, ask a stranger what time it is. End quote. But, Delaney points out, so much of that changed at the start of the pandemic. So many of those ways we understood or communicated time didn't exist anymore. No more commutes or school drop-offs or regularly recurring business trips, and they were replaced by other newer tasks, like remembering to have a mask nearby. Perceptions of things were changed. You know, a line that stretched around the block wouldn't actually take as long as that visual input used to mean because now everyone was standing six feet apart. Delaney writes, quote, All these new inputs seem to actually quicken our daily pace. Furthermore, concurrently, yet paradoxically, they caused a sense of overall slowness to emerge from a density of new demands. 
In addition, the dismantling of what was normal and the repositioning and prioritizing of balance and routines now described as remote, hybrid, a blend of in-person and virtual, or school back in unmasked session, we've had to relearn, readjust, or redefine what our former markers of time used to dictate, end quote. So part of the challenge now, it seems, is how frequently things keep changing. Not just that big changes happened, but that the world is continually transforming in ways big and small as we evolve our responses to the different phases of the pandemic. And there's another way the pandemic has altered, or at least exacerbated, one way that we view time, by pushing all of us online more in our communications. Chronemics, again, is the study of the relationship between time and communication. And when we're talking about nonverbal communication in the realm of what Delaney calls computer-mediated communication, or CMC, stuff gets really interesting. When you say something to someone face-to-face, you have a wealth of nonverbal markers that help you interpret what they mean. Their facial expression, body language, tone of voice, etc. But when you send a text message and wait for a response, you don't get those same clues about why a response might not be coming. There isn't an absence of clues completely, though. We've adapted to other nonverbal communication cues in messaging, timestamps, read receipts, or on some apps, when the person was last online, or if they have notifications paused. Those markers are analogous to the literal stamps put on letters by postmasters centuries ago, marking when a letter was sent or received. Back then, it was expected that a response by mail would take several weeks. Now, while text messages can be instantaneous, there's not exactly an expected time period in which one should or might receive a response, and the nuances therein are often guided by the relationship between the communicators or social cues present. Other nonverbal cues might include emoji use, punctuation, etc. Quoting once more, The new digital postal service provides yet another opportunity to reflect on time and how we use and talk about it at the very moment it is being redefined. Our nonverbals are reappearing and presenting themselves apace with unmasking and in-person communication, a real and present shift for all. The skillfully textual, the socially awkward and agile, the introverted and extroverted, the traveling and more homeward bound, all of us moving fast and slow. End quote. And though Delaney is drawing on an established academic field of study here, I think it all matches Paul Ford's more satirical piece I shared yesterday. It's not just the pandemic or just technology that is drastically shifting our perceptions of time and communication right now. It's both and more. How much about how we communicate with one another and define previously unquestioned concepts might change just naturally in this turbulent time? And what might we elect to change if we decide to seize the opportunity for some major overhauls? Well, staying on this time topic, let's talk about two of the holidays this weekend that help us mark the passage of time and honor it in different ways, Passover and Easter. Passover, the Jewish festival celebrating the Israelites' exodus from slavery in Egypt, begins tonight, running through the 23rd, and Easter, the Christian holiday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, is on Sunday, although Holy Week has been ongoing since Palm Sunday on the 10th. And even though they are both springtime observances that share several things in common, they don't always overlap. 
In fact, sometimes they can occur quite a ways away from each other. Robinson Meyer, who published an explainer of why this is in The Atlantic a few years ago, notes that 15% of the time, Passover and Easter actually fall a full month apart. Now, here's the basic answer that Myers gives initially, quote, There's a basic misalignment between the Christian and the Jewish festival calendars. Both holidays are supposed to fall on or near a full moon in the spring. Passover always begins on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. Because the Hebrew months are pegged directly to the lunar cycle, the 15th day of Nisan is always a full moon. For a time, early Christians used the Jewish calendar as a reference, celebrating Easter on the first Sunday after Nisan 15. But at the First Council of Nicaea in AD 325, the church decided to set its own date for Easter, independent of the Jewish reckoning. Today, most Christian communities celebrate Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon after March 21st. But sometimes this full moon isn't the same as the Jewish one, end quote. And there's the deeper layer of that answer. Both calendars are using lunar years, but lunar years are not the same length as a solar year, and not even all solar years are the same length. So religious calendars can seem a bit off, and really so much of how we try to wrangle time is kind of off thanks to our use of solar years. Maybe we should just switch to those non-solar techno definitions from Paul Ford that I shared yesterday. It would certainly be easier than what I'm about to lay on you. So physics professor Benjamin Dreyfus explained to Meyer that the Hebrew calendar, which uses lunar months, only adds up to 354 days, if there are 12 of them. And given that a solar year is 11 and a quarter more days than that, the Hebrew calendar would become super out of sync over time if they just left it as is. And since Passover is supposed to be celebrated during the springtime, that would eventually be a problem. So 2,000 years ago, the rabbinical court would occasionally decide to add an extra month to the calendar, based on if it was springy enough once the month of Nisan was approaching. And if they were all still wearing their North Face jackets and cursing the unmelted snowbanks on the sidewalks, they'd add in that bonus month. Eventually, around the 3rd century, they got a fixed calendar that puts that bonus month in 7 years out of every 19. Dreyfus notes that while this mostly works, the Hebrew calendar does drift about one day later than the solar one every 200 years, and there isn't currently a mechanism in place to correct that. But drift also affects the Gregorian calendar, the one used by most of the world these days, including Roman Catholics and most Protestants, but not the Eastern Orthodox Church. They still use the Julian calendar, so all of their holidays are on slightly different days. They won't be celebrating Easter until April 28th. But the Gregorian calendar usually calls for 365 days in a year. But as the solar year is actually 365.2425 days long, we have to add in leap days every four years. That mostly keeps us in sync, but not completely. Quoting Meyer, The Gregorian calendar still requires regular tweaks by hand. There is still a high rabbinical court of sorts that adjudicates the Gregorian calendar every year, deciding whether it should be adjusted to better match reality, except today the court is staffed not by rabbis, but by physicists. No solar year, remember, is the same length. Thanks to tiny wobbles in the Earth's orbit, some years are a second or two longer or shorter than others. So every year, the International Earth Rotation and Reference Systems Service announces whether to add a leap second in order to align Earth time with solar time. The United States officially opposes this practice. End quote. 
A previous article Meyer wrote explains that the U.S. opposes adding leap seconds basically because it's such an obscure thing that a lot of programmers don't know about it and therefore the code for a ton of companies doesn't account for it. And when you start to think about entire network failures, that does start to become a problem. This already causes issues on occasion, but I guess the fear is that it would cause even bigger problems if we officially adopted the addition or subtraction of leap seconds. Not adopting them, as Canada, China, and Britain have have, at least in the past, means that we will eventually shift further from that solar year. So, for example, in about a thousand years, the sun will be directly overhead at 1 p.m., not at noon. But by that time, we may have adapted. Demetrius Matsakis, then the chief scientist for time services at the U.S. Naval Observatory, gave Meyer a really great example. Think about Geoffrey Chaucer and his Middle English writing in works like the Canterbury Tales. You know, Juan that Aprilla with the Shora Sota, the drought of March hath pursed to the rota, and bathed every vein in swish liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. My AP English teacher made us memorize that, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. But the point is, unless you specialized in Middle English, you probably don't know what I just said. And that's fine. As Matsaki says, we all understand that language, technology, and the value of money change over time. But we may need to also understand that our perception of time itself will change over time as well. Quoting Meyer's distillation of Matsaki's point, we understand language to be one of those systems that has shifted imperceptibly over the centuries. In 600 years, when scholars translate texts from before the 21st century, they'll just know that, in addition to translating or annotating monetary values so they make sense for contemporaneous readers, noon needs to become 1 p.m., end quote. Kind of wild to think about. And I mean, I thought this was the sort of thing that the Time Variance Authority from Loki was supposed to keep in check for us. But the point is that all of these slight variances in the lunar year and the solar year and trying to map those on top of each other and map those on top of instructions from ancient sacred texts and cultural norms makes for an ever-changing, even if imperceptibly, challenge. And that is why Passover and Easter don't always coincide. But a couple of fun Passover headlines for you before I conclude. First, Vice President Kamala Harris and second gentleman Doug Emhoff will be hosting a Passover Seder at the White House this evening, becoming the first known second family to host a Passover Seder. Emhoff, who is Jewish and is the first Jewish spouse of a U.S. president or vice president, hosted a virtual Seder last year. Now, the first, first family to host a Passover Seder, a.k.a. the first official White House Passover Seder, was hosted by the Obama in 2009 and every subsequent year that President Obama was in office. Also, Israeli private astronaut Eitan Stiva will be celebrating Passover aboard the International Space Station this week. He brought a wine glass and matzah along with him, but he is not the first astronaut to observe Passover in space. NASA astronaut Garrett Resiman was the first to do so back in 2008. And no, even though Stiva packed a wine glass, there is not any wine allowed on the ISS. Officially, alcohol is prohibited. But cosmonauts have reportedly smuggled liquor on board before, and I wouldn't be shocked if some others had as well. So maybe Steva was hoping for some illicit space wine to fill his glass. So 
So a while back, I told you about Spin Launch, the startup that's trying to design a new way of launching satellites and other non-human containing payloads into space that would use substantially less fuel. The giant yo-yo-looking structure uses a rotating arm in a vacuum chamber that spins progressively faster until it shoots the object out of a tube at a thousand miles per hour. Well, even though it seemed like a bit of an offbeat idea for years, Spin Launch has just secured an official test with NASA. The test will take place later this year, launching a NASA payload at Mach 2 to start, but if all goes well, Spin Launch hopes to later test as high as Mach 6. Now, this method wouldn't ever be used for serious rocket launches, like with astronauts on them and stuff, but it could seriously reduce the carbon footprint of satellite launches and the like, which is clearly something NASA is intrigued by and believes enough in to test out. So pretty cool to see how that's developing. But that is it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.